Tonight I'm going to give you, uh, it's going to be another, it's weird because it's not, it's not a sermon. We're going through the history of Israel. Um, one of the books I've read through the years, my third time through, it's called uh, Holy War for the Promised Land by David Dolan. He's a CBS correspondent, has been for uh, at least since 19, uh, 1984-ish. Um, worked for New Hope Radio in uh, Israel. Christian guy, spoke one time at our uh, DTS chapel. I followed him for years. He's a great guy. Anyway, has written uh, at least a History is history, but he writes it from a conservative standpoint. So as I'm going through and trying to figure out Israeli history, and since I can't talk or listen as fast as Ben Shapiro speaks, uh, who also does a great, uh, if you want to get a good history of Israel on uh, YouTube, uh, do that. Just uh, look up Ben Shapiro in Palestine. Um, Excellent little 35 or so minute uh, video. So uh, let's take a look. Uh, Last time, two weeks ago, we left off at uh, 8135 where Israel was finally kicked out of their land by Hadrian, the, the emperor. They were, you, you remember their, their city was destroyed in AD 70, and uh, they were still present there, and they were still present even after 135, but um, they were mostly expunged from the land, and the land was renamed by the Roman Empire at this time to, just to stick it to Israel, they named the land of Israel Palestine, which comes from Philistia, the Philistines, their staunch enemies, or Syro, Syrio, Palestine. Uh, and that's what it became up till 1948. Of course, today it's still called Palestine, uh, at least in some areas. Um, when we look at the, the history as it goes forward from here, bring my computer to move. All right. Uh, from 313, now this is going to overlap with some of our church history. Uh, Emperor Constantine becomes, the, becomes a Christian. Um, he was a, becomes the emperor of Rome and a Christian, at least he said he was. He established Christianity as Rome's official religion or faith in 330, and at that point persecution ceases. Uh, up to this point, at least up to the time uh, where he became emperor in 313, there was widespread Christian persecution around the empire. The Edict of Milan allowed free worship, which followed thereafter. Palestine was then governed by the eastern portion of the empire. Remember, you've got two portions of the empire, the west in Rome and the east in Constantinople. And Palestine, as it had been named 150 or so years prior, is now governed by the eastern portion of the empire, at least falls under their tutelage. Constantine's mother, Helena, that's her, uh, visited Judea at this time, located the sites that she believed were important to Christianity. And every, if you go to, to Israel, there's all kinds of sites. This is where this happened. This is where that happened. This is where this person died. And that's all places that his mother went and said, this is the place. Today, they all have churches built on it. That's why when you go to Israel, uh, don't bother to go into the churches. It's a waste of your time. It's just a church built on a site that she's in. I'm sure she was accurate, perhaps in all of it. But uh, uh, there's really the churches are not much to see. Uh, stay outside when you go to Israel. If you ever go to Israel again, which I doubt anyone ever will. The Council of Nicaea in AD 325, we looked at that uh, because of an Alexandrian presbyter, Alexandria being in Egypt, a presbyter named Arius, he proposed that there was a time when Jesus did not exist, hence making him nothing but a created man. Constantine convened this council to discuss Jesus' deity with hundreds of bishops from all over the empire. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was overwhelmingly declared by these bishops at the Council of Nicaea, <clears throat> excuse me, to be declared uh, the only Son of God, quote, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. It's the Nicene Creed. And so it was affirmed 
um, from this council. It wasn't the first church council. We see a first church council in the book of Acts. Uh, but this one convened to uh, decide, yes, we believe because the Bible teaches us, because the apostles promote it, that Jesus is God. And he is not as Arius proposed. And as your, uh, those people who knock on your door today, called the Jehovah's Witnesses from the Watchtower Society, would say that Jesus is not God. He was a created being. So they're still around. So the question is, are the Jews bad people? Are they cursed by God? Um, we live in a day where anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism always ramps up um, a bit when, uh, when there's something in the news and something's going on in Israel, uh, in Palestine, I should say, uh, and people will uh, bring to light. The Jews are bad people. No one really knows why. I say no one. Uh, most folks that I've talked to, most books that I read, articles that I read, people don't even know why they hate the Jews. Uh, so let's take a quick look. We first note that God's chosen people came from Abraham through his son Isaac, through his son Jacob, and this is the line of the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. These people are uh, Abraham and his offspring are called Hebrew, Abraham the Hebrew. We see that him called that in Genesis 14, 13. So they're a Hebrew people. That's what they're titled. Hebrew became synonymous with Israel, although being Hebrew goes outside of being Israel because Hebrew, Abraham wasn't Israeli. Israeli. Uh, he was going to birth that nation, but there were a Hebrew people uh, that are not Israel. But it became synonymous with Israel. After the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C., Jews were called Israel. The ten tribes were lost, quote-unquote lost, to, to people. Uh, God still knows them, but they became known as Jews. Uh, typically, when you speak of Jews, you're speaking of Israelites, Israelis. Hebrews. The New Testament was written by Jewish men, uh, or in the case of Luke and Mark, by Gentiles who had access to the apostles, but they were all Jewish. Uh, don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. The New Testament is written by Jews. And Jesus himself was a Jew. So we can't say that the Jews are bad people and cursed. We can't jump on that bandwagon. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, uh, but make sure that you know that. That's, um, when people jump on that bandwagon and call Jews evil, they're Think about Jesus, who was a Jew. Paul himself was an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, hence he was a Jew. Believers in the early Jerusalem church, the early Jerusalem church, Jerusalem, glad I put that twice, they were Jewish. And we read in Acts 6, 7, even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the early Jewish Christianity, early Jewish Christians were Jewish. They didn't all reject Jesus. Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus at night, he told Jesus that there were many among the Pharisees that knew that he was a man sent from God. They knew it. He said, because no one could teach like you teach. Do the things you do. Were you not sent from God? During the crucifixion, it is said that the Jews beat their breasts in mourning over Jesus' death. So they all didn't hate Jesus. So although Jews have been charged with killing the Christ, and rightfully so, they did. They handed him over to the Romans. This is in no way means that all Jews were responsible for such. Not then, not now. Uh, remember, Jesus went to the cross for the sins of mankind. Uh, that means that we're all guilty of that. So we can't just designate the Jews as doing this. Many believed in Jesus, and through the Jews, God has given us our scriptures, which teach the truth. We look at a Bible written by Jewish people, written by Jews. Our, our Savior is a Jewish carpenter, right? Paul speaks of the riches for Gentiles who have been grafted as a wild olive branch into the olive tree. That's from Romans 11. Kind of hard to be grafted into a tree that's dead and uprooted, correct? 
So, though theology, some people's theology through the years, through the centuries, going way back, especially to the, um, like say, the, the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that Israel is gone. They mean nothing. That the church replaced Israel. Uh, they have no need for a Jewish nation to rise up again. The Jews and Israelites mean nothing to them. Uh, it, it makes no sense to the theology. Everything has to change if the nation of Israel is going to come back and God's actually going to bring uh, all Israel back to salvation, which I will explain as we go through this tonight. So how can the church be grafted into the tree that was previously supplanted? It can't. That is alive. That tree is alive. That tree being, that olive tree being the Jewish nation, Israel. You and I are a wild olive branch. We're a wild olive. Actually, it's the tree. We're just a wild pluck, and we're stuck in. Take a, imagine a branch being broken off of a tree, uh, an oak tree of some sort, and you go over to another tree, you carve a hole, and you stick the branch in it. We become part of that tree. That's the illustration that Paul gives in Romans 11. So let's take a look at the evolution of anti-Semitism. I know that's what you came here to do. We're looking at the history of Israel. Let's take a look at this. It's very interesting. <clears throat> Let me mute this for a second. And that's what I have. Evolution of anti-Semitism. After the Jews were chased out of Israel in AD 135, Justin, that's Justin Martyr, who died in 165, he wrote to an unidentified rabbi saying in this dialogue with Trifo, because you have murdered the just one. So dating back to, to this second century, middle of the second century, you've got a very prominent Christian, Justin Martyr, talking about the Jews who have murdered the just one. Origen, another great theologian back in the day, this would be the, uh, the, early, uh, the late second century, early third century, he concluded that the Jews will never be restored to their former condition. For they have committed a crime of the most unhallowed kind, conspiring against the Savior of the human race. These are, these are profound teachers, sought out, writing. These were the, the heavy hitters of the day. So if you're in the church and you, you're listening to your teachers, these are what your teachers are saying. Which means that Origen never read uh, really the New Testament very carefully. Certainly not the book of Romans, Romans 11 for instance, which we'll look at it before we close tonight. Jewish hostility reached its peak through, of all men, John Chrysostom, which we looked at in our church historical survey as one of the great preachers. In fact, Chrysostom means golden mouth, John the golden mouth. He was an amazing expository biblical preacher uh, and very popular at the time. Here he is. Chrysostom stands out above all others in his hatred for Jews. Just putting together eight of his sermons, we get this. He calls the Jews lustful, rapacious, I had to look that up, means gluttons, Greedy, perfidious, I had to look that up, means lying. Lying bandits, inveterate, which means incurable murderers, destroyers, men possessed by the devil, with manners of the pig, and the lusty goat. That's what's being preached. It's what's being preached to the Christian church. He said that Jews worship the devil, their religion is a disease. How about that? I mean, think about it. When you call a Jewish religion, the Jewish religion comes from where? The Old Testament. Weird to call that a disease. Jews are, are what they are, quote, because of their odious assassination of Christ, unquote. He called for a perpetual holy war against the Jews, saying, 
Quote, he who can never love Christ enough will never be done fighting against those who hate him. Unquote. Sounds like your first Muslim, doesn't it? This is a Christian preacher, one who loved Jesus, believed he was the Christ, the Son of God. Thus, Chrysostom used his great influence to teach that God hates Jews, and as a result, they will never again be a sovereign nation or have a temple. Another one that missed a few chapters in the New Testament, unfortunately. In AD 306, church leaders in Elvira, Spain, issued a decree barring close relations of any kind between Christians and Jews. Okay, this is, again, 4th century, early 4th century. A decree, imagine, a decree that goes out and says, Christians, you cannot have any relations with Jews. All of this misses Jesus' command to do what with your enemies? It always comes back to love, doesn't it? Council of Nicaea in AD 325 also worked to ensure that the Passover and Easter would not be celebrated simultaneously. What followed was the burning of Jewish synagogues, a practice that Constantine at least frowned upon. The Council of Antioch in 341 explicitly prohibited Christians from celebrating Passover with their Jewish neighbors. Now, Christians don't celebrate Passover. They celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. Not the death angel passing over the Israelites, but those two holidays come together, don't they? Not on the exact day. In fact, Easter is different every year. It's depending upon when, where the moon is, where the phase of the moon is on the first day of the, the vernal equinox, and blah, 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 blah. The Council of Laodicea, which was a long one, you can see 434 to 481, uh, forbade Christians from keeping the Jewish Sabbath. Or to receive, another misprint on my part, to receive Passover gifts or unleavened bread from Jews observing the Passover. So you can see this is very early in church history, preached by the church to hate the Jews. Although Constantine made Judaism a legally protected religion, conversions to Judaism were forbidden for Roman citizens, calling Jewish practices detestable and nefarious. Okay. So Judaism was legal, the world leader that people believe, many believe, is the second coming of Christ himself, Constantine, Christ on earth. Christendom has been ushered in under the empire, under the emperor, I should say. He's the one calling, uh, telling Jews you can't be Roman citizens, you're detestable and nefarious. Emperor Theodosius banned Jews from holding public office in AD 438. In the 5th century, which is what 438 is, same century, Jewish persecution heated up in Alexandria, Egypt, with misguided Christian preachers encouraging the destruction of Jewish synagogues all over the empire. Thousands of Jews perished. In the days of Pope Gregory, who was a great pope, 590 to 604, physical violence was condemned while other forms of persecution uh, were not only tolerated but encouraged. So uh, don't, don't beat them up, but trip them up. Uh, keep them from eating. Don't give them jobs. Just, you know, don't treat them well. Don't treat them like Jesus would. There are many instances where Jewish children are forcibly taken from their parents to be raised by Roman Catholics. And that would have been a, thought of to be a loving way to raise the generation of Jewish children. Imagine uh, what, what, what went on, what's gone on in the name of Christ. But since the church forbade Christians from usury, which is loaning money, Jews were encouraged to be the moneylenders. Which is why you hear even today that the Jews control all the money. But you know why Jews control all the money today? If they do, they don't control all the money. They are among the most intelligent, sophisticated people this planet has ever known. Ever. 
They're the ones that win the awards. They're the ones that invent. They're the ones. They are at the top of the list. They, I want to dwell in the tents of Shem. As God said, Japheth and that the servants of the people of Ham would serve the people of, of Shem, and people of Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. I want to do that. <clears throat> From 614 to 1099, the Persians invaded Palestine and captured Jerusalem in 614. Excuse me. Muhammad established Islamic, or Islam, I should say, in Mecca in 622, A.D. 622. Roman forces recapture Jerusalem in 629. Muslim forces take Jerusalem from the Byzantine Empire, which is the east, and controlled it for 400 years. And you can see um, the blue is, is water. Um, see right there in the middle of the map is Jerusalem. This is a picture. It's not a it's not a map. I had to pull it from one of my resources. But you can just see Islam spreading, and uh, it doesn't come into Jerusalem. Well, it does. They come in and they take over Jerusalem, and they build a, uh, the Dome of the Rock. I shouldn't say they didn't. They absolutely did. And they spread out uh, all over the known world at the time. Uh, quick little um, timeline there. you got the birth of Muhammad. If Muhammad even existed, it's said that he born born in 570. Um, capture of Mecca in 630, death of Muhammad in 632, conquest of Jerusalem and Damascus, 636. Uh, and you can see the conquest of Cordova, Spain, and the expansion, the Indus Valley, the Battle of Tours, France, which is where um, um, Islam kind of met its match in, uh, in uh, who was it, Charlemagne. The capture of Jerusalem by the Crusaders. So Islam has a, has a great, great meaning, a, a deep and long history, uh, and yet, and today it still kind of rules the day in Palestine. All that fighting in Israel has to do with Judaism and Islam. But what? they didn't start it. Who didn't start what? The, the Muslims, the Islamic. It didn't start there. It started with Christians. Yeah, yeah. the hatred for Jews. You'd like to put it all back on, on uh, the, uh, the Muslims, but you're right. It started in the church. So... One point five billion Muslims, that's what you said, Joseph? One billion five hundred million. And Catholicism is the same. What is? Catholicism is the same number. So one point five billion Muslims, one point five billion Catholics. Yeah. Hmm. We looked at the Crusades, um, so this is just a quick review. In six thirty nine the Muslims captured the Jerusalem and built the Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock, by the way, sits on uh, the site where David's temple sat. Solomon's temple, I should say. In 1095, Pope Urban II called for a crusade. Pope Urban is in Rome. He's in the west, not the east. He called for a crusade to take Jerusalem from the Turks and Arabs. This might possibly be the most powerful sermon ever preached. It changed the world. It wasn't a good sermon. didn't have a good application. Whatever the sermon was, the application was, now everyone go from Rome over to Jerusalem, kill everyone in your wake, in the way, and retake Jerusalem because it's the, the place of our, our Lord and Savior. Yes, that's what Jesus wanted us to do, right? The Pope promised anyone who participated in the crusade the equivalent of penance. In other words, if you go do this, you ensure your place in heaven. The first crusade in July 15, 1099, it conquered Jerusalem, slaughtering Jews and Muslims. Public facilities in Israel were rebuilt. Tourism and businesses prospered for a time. Uh, they lost it. The Second Crusade failed to take uh, Edessa and Syria from the Muslims. Afterward, Jerusalem fell back into Muslim hands. And the Third Crusade uh, also failed to retake Jerusalem with, 
with bloodbaths everywhere. The Fourth Crusade, 1202 to 1204, never even reached the Holy Land, but became entangled in a series of financial and political issues that brought the Crusaders to Constantinople, where they fought against their own brethren. On Good Friday, 1204, the Western Crusaders broke through the walls of Constantinople, and for three days the Crusaders killed, tortured, and raped Eastern Christians in the name of Christ. So the Crusades were not a good time. Uh, Judenrein, if you have a good uh, German accent, you could say it better than I. It means to be without Jews. The first mass expulsion of Jews from their homes was ordered by King Dagobert of Gaul in 626. Uh, Jews were expelled from the kingdom of Grenada, which is southern Spain, in 1066. After the Crusades, uh, where they were run out of Jerusalem and slaughtered along with Muslims by Christians, they were expelled from other various countries. And here's a list from 1291 to 1516. Uh, Egyptian Mamluks military forces uh, captured Jerusalem and ruled in Palestine. Christians and Jews living in Palestine severely persecuted by the Mamluks who uh, attempt to force their conversion to Islam. If you're Jewish or Christian, you're going to be forced to be Muslim. The Jews were expelled from Britain in 1290, from Hungary in 1349, from France in 1394, from Spain in 1492, and Portugal in 1497. Just kind of the thing to do. Y'all leave. Egyptian Ottomans conquered the Mamluks in 1516, and this is modern-day Turkey, of course, and they take control of Palestine. Suleiman the Magnificent is there on the is pictured. He rebuilds much of Jerusalem, but he's Muslim. Where did the Jews go? They just scattered. The Jews don't have a place to go. And so they scattered uh, when they were left. Uh, they, in fact, there was a large population of them in Poland when, uh, during World War II because Poland welcomed them. Uh, so they went anywhere that, where, they could, where they were welcomed or where they could hide. Um, hence the dispersion, the diaspora. They have been scattered everywhere. After the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the Jews were forced to wear a yellow or crimson badge in order to prevent sexual intercourse between Jews and Christians, an offense punishable by death in most regions. You thought this started with Hitler. started in 1215. During the Black Plague between 1347 and 1350, Jews were blaming or were blamed uh, for poisoning Europe's water supply with a concoction of sacred hosts, that is some demonic concoction, uh, with human hearts, and with various insects and animals. In other words, they blame the plague on them. Um, whenever you can blame something on the Jews, you do so. It also didn't help that the Jews, uh, because of their cleanliness, because of their obedience to Old Testament, did not suffer as widespread problems in the Black Plague. They knew to wash their hands. They may not have known why, but they knew to do so. And they didn't eat unclean meat. They didn't eat anything that they didn't eat shellfish they didn't eat rats they didn't eat rabbits they ate clean food and so they were massacred all over europe because now all of europe is saying they're the ones responsible for the black plague which killed uh, a third to a half of europe the spanish then instituted their great wonderful solution called the inquisition by pope sixtus the fourth in 1478 and it was of course to seek out all heretics and jews and force them to convert to christianity which is catholic under the threat of death so if you're, if you're Catholic, I'm sorry, if you are Jewish or if you are Muslim, you will be tortured until such a time as you say, Uncle, I believe in Jesus. Well, we got us another conversion. Write it down. Wow, what great evangelistic techniques in the Inquisition. Sorry, my, my sarcasm is coming out. It just angers me. My sarcasm comes out when I get angry, when I see what's going on in the news today, when I see what's happened to these people. It's just the ridiculousness of it. 
1555, Pope Paul IV made Jewish ghettos an official as part of his fight against the dreaded Protestant Reformation, um, apparently believing the Jews were Christians, and let's, uh, let's attack them and associate all of them with uh, Martin Luther's cockamamie ideas. Martin Luther and the Jews, early on Luther welcomed all Jews to hear the gospel, to repent of their sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved the Jews. They were an audience to preach Christ to. Twenty years later, after he realized the Jews weren't believing the gospel, he called them disgusting vermin, quote-unquote, who should be deported from Germany. Luther's pamphlet on the Jews and their lies in 1543 called for seven steps to be taken against the Jews, including the burning of their synagogues, the raising of their homes, the banning of their holy books, and the seizure of their assets. Martin Luther. His ideas germinated and came to fruition in the great man Adolf Hitler. The ideas for exterminating the Jews by Hitler came from Martin Luther. How horrible is that? Some of you knew that. Maybe you're hearing that for the first time tonight. Meanwhile, in the United States of America, Jews began to arrive in the U.S. in 1654. By 1862, during the United States Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant ordered Jews to leave the southern U.S. within 24 hours. Abraham Lincoln rescinded his order. And when Grant later became president, he renounced his original order and worked to advance the goodwill of the Jews in the United States. Whew, that's good because I always liked Grant. I mean, I always did, you know, because I was always around when he was there. You know. From 1882 to 1905, some 35,000 Jews immigrated to the United States, mostly from Russia, called the Aliyah, or going up. That's what Jews used to say, and going up to Jerusalem. Uh, from Russia, 35,000 Jews. The types of Jews in the United States, people ask this all the time. Uh, we talked about it a little bit when we were in Jerusalem this past year. Um, there's the Orthodox Jews, and they're the ones that you might see if you've been to the Western Wall or if you've seen pictures, they're the ones hanging out at the Western Wall. Uh, they've got the long hair coming down the sides. They wear black. They don't work. They do nothing to contribute to society. Uh, they are completely taken care of by the government, and they read all day and hate everyone that's not them. Um, they believe the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, to be God's Word. They would never call it the Old Testament, of course, because to call the Old, the Old Testament implies that there is a New Testament, which, of course, Orthodox Jews don't believe in. No female rabbis in Orthodox Judaism. Then there's Reform Judaism, which is very liberal. They reject the Old Testament as God's word. Equal participation of men and women as rabbis in Reformed Judaism. Sounds like it should be conservative, right? Reformed should be Christian, sounds like it. Then you've got conservative Jews. I'm sorry? Same thing liberal preachers do if they don't believe the Bible is God's word. A lot of, a lot of nothing. Yeah. yeah. Conservative Judaism was formed in America. It's moderate. Moderate just takes a little bit of what? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Basically liberal. Jesus said, I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So really, it's good to either be a Reformed Jew or an Orthodox Jew. I wouldn't want to be in that middle ground of anything else. Uh, hot or cold. Either believe what you believe with all of your heart or completely reject it with all of your heart. It's that middle ground, it's that lukewarm nature. Of people that, eh, they ride the fence, they come to church. I like Jesus, but I like my life. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, I like this over here. You make Jesus want to vomit, essentially what the passage is saying. 
this Jewish resurgence, 1897 to 1948, uh, the first Zionist Congress in Switzerland. And a Zionist is one who is for the development and protection of the nation of Israel. You hear about the Zionist movement all the time. They're just people that are for Israel, typically Jews. In World War I, from 1914 to 1918, the Ottomans were defeated by Britain, which took control of Palestine. The Ottoman Empire fought with Germany, but officially ended. That empire ended in 1922. British Foreign Minister uh, A.J. or Al. Arthur James Balfour pledged his support for a national home for the Jews in Palestine called the Balfour Declaration in 1917 in a letter to Baron Rothschild, who was a British Zionist, wealthy one too. Palestine had a small Jewish population in 1917, but just small. Wasn't, certainly wasn't anything like you would imagine it today. British ruled Palestine from 1918 to 1948, and Jews from all over Europe migrated there. The Hebrew University was also founded there. It's still there. In 1921, the first Jewish, Jewish village was set up. In 1922, one quarter of the land was mandated for the Jewish national homeland by the League of Nations, called the Mandate for Palestine. In 1927, the nation of Jordan is created by the British on the east bank of the Jordan River, ruled by Britain. 1939 to 1945, World War II. In 1939, the British began to limit Jewish migration. Western nations see Jewish need for refuge, our nation, that is. In 1943, the Jews are expelled from major European cities, and they are stripped of citizenship, the ones that aren't in the death camps anyway. In 1946, the Ergen, which is a Jewish paramilitary or terrorist group, blows up the King David Hotel on June 29th, called the Black Sabbath. Not the same as the, the rock group, uh, but it was Black Sabbath, uh, built, and it was built in 1932 in retaliation against the British for invading their agency. Anyone know what popular, if you know your Jewish history, what particular man was, was involved with the Ergen? His name was Menachem Begin, or Menachem Begin, uh, was part of the Ergen. Uh, they weren't real happy with the British mandate and British ruling in their land. They weren't, British weren't always real uh, they weren't oppressive. They just really didn't know what they had gotten themselves into by taking that part of the world over. In 1946, Jordan becomes independent, away from Britain, as a monarchy under King Abdullah. In 1947, in May, the United Nations proposes the establishment of both an Arab and a Jewish state in Palestine. And so it begins. From 37 to 42, Jews began to leave Arab countries. In 1948, on May the 14th, the British turn over the control of Jewish portion of Palestine to the Jews and David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister. Israel is declared an independent state. So from 8135 to 1948, they had no homeland. Now all of a sudden in 1948, by a decree of the United Nations, they have their homeland. It's a great victory there. There's some wonderful books to read on this. And now, is the Arab world happy? Or are they celebrating with them? No, they're preparing for war. No one wants the Jews, at least none of the Arab nations want the Jews in that land. On 1948, May 15th, Israel is attacked by Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. If you look at a map, that's just all the nations that surround them. They are hemmed in. Jordan, Syria, and Egypt, and Lebanon signed peace agreement with Israel. The Jews lost the old city of Jerusalem but gained over 2,500 square miles. They won this war. What, it's just inexplicable. And every time I read it and read a book about it, I just grin ear to ear. 
Egypt thought they were so bad. They thought they were so great with their air force and all their artillery and all their money, all these Arab nations, and little fledgling Israel using planes coming out of Czechoslovakia and what's left over from British, from the, the, the Jews who had fought with the Brits in World War II and some of them that had fought with the United States are using their planes and their know-how and they're wiping out these nations. God is with them even though they reject the Messiah. In 1949, the capital of Israel has moved from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Jordan forbids Jewish access to the Western Wall. So Jews have not been to the Western Wall. They, they have not been there in 1948. They can't get there. Eastern Jerusalem and the West Bank are annexed by Jordan, violating all their agreements to the contrary. Um, they don't want them there. By the way, the West Bank, if you know the West Bank, I, don't, I didn't put up a picture for you, but you've seen the West Bank. You've got Israel down there in this little carved out area called the West Bank. It's just the West Bank of the Jordan River. The East Bank is Jordan, and Jordan calls their country the West Bank as it kind of, it's really Judea and Samaria from the Old Testament. Also in 1949, Israel becomes a member of the United Nations, though several countries objected to it. 49 to 1967, Jerusalem is divided under Israeli, Western, and Jordanian, Eastern rule. 48 to 52, mass immigration of Jews from Europe and Arab countries. One million refugees from Arab nations, plus a 500,000 member Holocaust survivors, or 500,000 Holocaust survivors move to Israel. Half a million into Israel after World War II. 1956, the Sinai War. Egypt took control of the Suez Canal to stop Israel, Israeli shipping, but after the UN intervened, shipping resumed. Egypt continued to control the canal. Thousands of Jews expelled from Egypt, leaving all their property behind, forbidden to take anything they owned with them. Every time Egypt does this, they, they just, they're like a kid on the playground that lost, that got beat up. And just, yeah, you take this, you get out. I'll just sit with his bloody face. Egypt looks like such fools in all of these wars. Uh, they, they come out with such bravado, we're going to annihilate you. We're going to push you into the sea. That's what they say. Yeah. Be careful when you make empty threats against Israel. In 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, is founded for the sole purpose of obliterating the Jews, taking back their land, and pushing them into the sea. In 1967, this is the one that gives me the biggest grin. With Egypt, Jordan, and Syria threatening war, that's Egypt in the south, that's Syria in the north, and Jordan to the east. The only thing on the west is a big body of water called the Mediterranean Sea. All of their, uh, their enemies threatening them, they preempted an airstrike on Egypt. And if you ever read a good book on the Six-Day War, the whole thing just lasted six days. Israel was going to be annihilated. These nations have money. They're being funded by Russia and Iran. Uh, Russia and Iran funding them. Israel doesn't have hardly anything. Israel knows they're going to be attacked, so instead of waiting for the day they knew they'd be attacked, they just preempted it. And they used what they had, and they, they beat down the, the great, mighty air force of the Middle East, Egypt. They blew away their... their uh, um, their runways. <laughs> Isn't that great? They couldn't get their planes off the ground. And their, their leader, um, Nasser, I believe his name, and he's just talking a bunch of smack. He shuts them up. Pretty, they shut him up pretty good. The, say again. Nasser wants to start the war Friday and finish Sunday. Yes, it was Friday. We'll finish it up by Sunday. We'll get it over for the weekend, right? The Jews said no. 
Israel gained control after the Six-Day War. Six days. They gained control over East Jerusalem, which they didn't have. The West Bank, which they didn't have. Gaza. The Golan Heights, which is Gilead in the Bible. And the Sinai Peninsula. Although Jews controlled these regions, they allowed the Arabs to settle there. In other words, they had the whole territory. It's theirs. They took it. And all they sought to do afterward was just trade land for peace. Trade land for peace. We won. All of you guys talk smack. We won. We took our land. And for the first time, they made it to the Western Wall. And they're there rejoicing and crying. There's a film of it. 1968, the communists forced thousands of Jews out of Poland. From 70 to 90, Russia forces out thousands of Jews. 1973, on October 6th, Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur War was waged by Egypt and Syria, who attacked Israel in the Sinai and the Golan Heights, that's their land, on the holiest day of the year, when they thought the Jews would be, and they were right, Jews would be celebrating, fasting. They always fast on this day. Though Israel sustained many casualties, they won that war in 19 days. Cheryl and I were just watching a documentary on that the other day on Golda Meir, who was the, uh, the premier at the time, or the prime minister. Um, another amazing victory, but they lost. They suffered many casualties. Again, against all odds. It's an amazing story in Israel. 1979, the Camp David Accords, a peace treaty brokered by President Jimmy Carter between Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. Didn't go too well for Sadat, unfortunately, because two years later, Sadat was assassinated by an Egyptian Islamist for signing the 79 Agreement with Israel. Arabs don't want anyone of their people to make a deal with Israel. They hate Israel. Israel are pigs. They deserve to be killed, annihilated. They have no reason to exist on this earth to an Arab, to a Muslim. Note that. No Muslim can make a peace treaty. No true Muslim can make a peace treaty with Israel. They can't even bring themselves to say, you are truly a nation. That's what the PLO was designed to be. Never, announce, never admit it's a nation. Kick them into the sea, annihilate them all. And Sadat paid for it, for making peace with them. In 82, Hebrew becomes the official language of Israel. In 84, there's Operation Moses, which is 8,000 Ethiopian Jews. That's Jews living in Ethiopia, secretly evacuated by the IDF. That's the uh, um, Israeli Defense Force and the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, due to the famine in the country that was causing the civil war there. So get them out. There's a famine. Bring them into Israel. 88 to 90, 1 million Soviet Jews move to Israel. It's getting bigger, is it not? In 91, Israel is attacked by Iraqi Scud missiles during the Gulf War. They do not retaliate, although they want to and should be able to because the U.S. asks them not to, and they comply. In Operation Solomon, 14,000 Jews from Ethiopia are airlifted to Israel in 36 hours. In 93, you have the Oslo Accords, uh, where Israel and the PLO sign a limited peace agreement. Essentially, Israel is telling the PLO, uh, you will recognize us as a nation, we will recognize the PLO as, a, uh, as, a, as an authority, um, which will become the Palestinian Authority, supposed to have been, and you will recognize Israel as, uh, we'll recognize you, you'll recognize us. And at this point, I believe it was in 1993 at the Oslo Accords, where the PLO took out of their charter that Israel um, can't be a nation. And this was brokered by President Bill Clinton between Yitzhak Rabin and Mahmoud Abbas of the PLO. In 94, Israel and Jordan sign a peace agreement between Rabin and King Hussein, Israel returning some of the West Bank along with equitable sharing of the water of the Jordan. 
Jordan River. When you're in Israel, um, it's, it's hard to come across water. I mean, even in the modern day, we, we were asking about that on the bus and we're t- going over to Jordan, is where does this water come from? Well, it's, it comes from the Jordan, comes from, uh, you have to share it. And Jordanians and the, and the Israelites, Israelis, the Jews, are, are sharing that. So 1994, there's peace between, or there's peace, somewhat peace, cold peace between Jordan and Israel. In 95, Rabin, unfortunately, is assassinated by a fellow Jew who opposed the Oslo Accords. He didn't want uh, Israel um, in any kind of a peace treaty with the Arabs, any more so than the Arabs wanted a peace treaty with Israel. (laughs) Benjamin Netanyahu at this time was part of that group that opposed the Oslo Accords, and when he became the prime minister, uh, he didn't want to keep the peace, but he honored that peace and had to become friends with uh, Yasser Arafat. In 2000, Prime Minister Ehud Barak and the PLO leader Yasser Arafat met at Camp David, the meeting ended without peace agreement, even though Barack was giving him, offering him all kinds of land for peace. Uh, it was um, rebuffed, and Arafat went off and started another intifada, uh, which is a shaking off or an uprising, another war. Here, we'll, why don't we, this is Israel, we'll give you this land for peace. No, I'm leaving and we're going to bomb you again. They don't want peace. There will never be peace in the Middle East as long as Muslims exist in the Middle East. They loathe Israel. It goes against everything their religion teaches to make a peace deal with a Christian or a Jew. It cannot happen. Next week we'll look at in the prophecy about how there will be peace. How are we going to have peace in the Middle East? What leader, what world leader is going to be able to broker a peace agreement when Israel knows the Arabs can't make a peace treaty as Muslims? Israel knows that they're not idiots. And the Arabs are not going to do it. How can that happen? Well, I'll show you what I think. Uh, may be wrong, but uh, I'll show you what I think. President in uh, 2019, Donald Trump recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital city, moves the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. From 96 to 99, going backwards a bit, Benjamin Netanyahu, and again in 09 to 2021, uh, Netanyahu serves as Israeli prime minister. He was born in Tel Aviv, but he was raised in Philadelphia, actually. Uh, where his father was a professor. Uh, he returned to Israel in 67, participated in a daring rescue of a hijacked airliner in 1972, led by another prime minister, Ehud Barak. Um, I don't know. Is that the same hijacked airliner that, that uh, the Munich games? Yeah, I think it was. So the, and then Netanyahu returned to America in 1972 under a degree from MIT. Um, and so, you know, he is their prime minister today. And, of course, you know what happened on October 7th. Again, another Yom Kippur, uh, Hamas, uh, the uh, governing authority in the Gaza Strip, decided to slaughter and kill uh, innocent Jews. They laugh about it, what they've done. If, you've not, if you don't know what they've done, I, I don't even encourage you to, to investigate it. It's too horrific. I was listening to another one today, David Dolan actually talking about uh, at a church where he was speaking and, and what, he, what he saw and, and what has been done um, and the way these people treat uh, Jews, uh, the way they treat babies, the way they treat men and women. Um, they loathe them. Peace, there are some that, would, that might be able to broker peace. Even Yasser Arafat was, was, a, was promoting peace, but he had to satisfy his Arab brothers, and they didn't want it. So how can it ever happen? Is Israel doomed? I mean, you read a history book on Israel and you think this, this nation is doomed. Everyone hates them. They, they're not going to make it back. But the fact that they're here at all, the fact that they're still here at all and thriving, this is a first world country. This is a democratic nation 
with a powerful military, freedom for all, education, and we have idiots in our own country who are out promoting. Now, look, let's not, let's not land-based Palestinians in general or Arabs in general. There are Palestinian and Arab Christians. We had one in Bethlehem showing us around, preaching the gospel the whole time. We loved him. We got him for a day. I've met them before. Our bus driver uh, this past time, Tiger. We love Tiger. Palestinian, Arab. Great guy. Smiled at us, hugged us, knew our name, served us well. They're not all bad. Any more so than, than all Christians are all bad or all, all Jews are not all Jews are not all good. So don't ever have this sweeping generalization. Don't let yourself say all Palestinians are bad and all Jews are good. There's really bad ones on both camps, in both camps. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about a group of people who loathe Israel. We've also talked about, by the way, when we left Israel to go into Jordan, we were, we were left behind by our, our, uh, our fearless leader, Sharon. We're leaving the protection of Israel, and we're going over the border, a, a busload of Christians. How many of us were there? I, can't, I, I don't know it. I counted them six times every day. How many do we have? Six, 35? 37? I counted them. I, I don't even remember, and I counted them constantly, the bus. Something like that. One time we counted, and there was no Linda, and I'm running back and forth. I'm running, literally running back and forth, and somebody, oh, she's in the back of the bus asleep. Oh, Why didn't we check the back of the bus? Anyway, I don't know where I was going. Do you have a question, William? Yeah. Why is like a million Palestinians living in Israel and working and living in peace? Of course. Yeah, there are uh, a million, up to a million, living and working in peace. Uh, they are. They're there. They're, they're decent people. So. Twenty-five million Jews now. Are there that many? I thought there was sixteen, seventeen. 25 million. They're everywhere. That's right. They have endured. Uh, they have prospered against all the hatred meted out for them. All the other nations in the Bible you read about? Anybody ever met a Moabite? An Edomite? A Philistine? Any of the others that you can't pronounce their names? They're all gone. But the Jews survive. Why? They must. Well, I thought, are they any good to us after Jesus was born? I mean, do we need the Jews now? I'm being crass. Mike. Do we need the Jews after Jesus is born? I mean, they birthed the Messiah. Do we need them for anything else? Of course we do. I mean, we need them because without them, God is a liar. God has promises that those early preachers were not preaching. It's very important that you be a dispensationalist so that you understand the importance of Israel. So any of my amillennial brothers or sisters who might be in this church or listening to this on a recording, please convert to premillennialism. Convert to dispensationalism because your amillennialism is corrupt in this sense. You put out Israel as nothing. You believe the church has replaced Israel. It hasn't. God has a plan for Israel. He's bringing it back. Take a look. Romans eleven twenty five. 25. Paul says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. It's a mystery. What is the mystery? So that you will not be wise in your own estimation if you're uninformed about it. Here it is. Here's the mystery. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
So think about that. Paul is telling us, guys, here's what's going on. He's, he's talking to people. He's talking to the church in Rome. He's telling them about why the Jews, in large measure, are rejecting the gospel. And they are in large measure. Not all. Many are coming to know Christ. But in large measure, he's saying, this is a mystery. I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. Note that God has hardened the hearts of Israel, partially, not completely, so that not the entire nation is hardened, but some from it. What are, throughout the Old Testament, when you see Israel as a whole and some coming from Israel, what are those some called? The remnant. The remnant of Israel. The remnant of true Israel. There's all Israel and there's the remnant that comes out of Israel. And there is the partial hardening of the whole, but only partial because there's a remnant. And, and this hardening will occur until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles, well, the Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. So that's pretty simple. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The fullness of the Gentiles, the gospel went out from Jerusalem when the Jew, after the Jews rejected it, by and large, large and large measure, to the Gentiles. So if, if you look at it like, kind of put your hands together like that, and in the early centuries, you've got Gentiles coming to know Christ. We don't know what it is, how, how far it is, or think about a cup being filled up. But when the fullness of the Gentiles, when the last Gentile that God chose from before the foundation of the world comes to know Christ, then the partial hardening of Israel will stop. And God will go back and deal with Israel. Romans 11, yes. Yeah. They have to say this before the Lord Jesus comes. So the presence of the Jew must be there. Yes. So has Israel said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Not yet. <laughs> they said it when Jesus came into town, they crucified him, and they haven't said it yet, have they? No, not yet. So we await that time. And until that time, there's a partial hardening of Israel. Continuing what Paul says, and he says at this time, so until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Now, the good question is, does that mean that everyone who's ever been a part of Israel will all of a sudden be saved? All those who died in the past, all those today, everyone living, that they'll all be saved? No. It does not mean that. In fact, all Israel up to the time of Jesus who didn't have Jesus to believe in, those who believed God, the promises given to Abraham. Remember, Abraham was saved. How was Abraham saved? By faith. He believed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's what it is. You believe. And so up to Jesus, all who believed God, that's a Jewish person, believed they're saved. We call them saved. They were redeemed. They believed God. The Christ came. So you've got all the Jews up to that time. The Christ came at this point, and all the Jews that rejected him and died, died in their sins, just like Old Testament saints or Old Testament unbelievers died in their sins. But Jews who believed in Jesus died. They're already saved. They don't have to will be saved, as this passage says. They're already saved. They're with Jesus. Every Jew who's ever died in their faith in Christ is already with Jesus. So this is talking about when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when God finally has the last Gentile believe, 
And he goes back to Israel, all true Israel. Everyone that God has assigned, all those who know Jesus in Israel will be saved. So you've got the whole round picture. Here's everyone who's ever Jewish right here. It fits in this bubble of Jewishness. Descending from Abraham and from, from his physical descendants. But from that, it's just a remnant. We don't know how many that will be that have believed, that do believe today, and that will believe. Those that will believe are so all Israel. When they finally get those who will believe, you see, Israel over here from the past is Israel saved. Those who believe today is Israel saved, but that's not all Israel. We're waiting for future Israelites to believe in Christ, and then you got all Israel. And thus all Israel will be saved. That's yet future. Based on what Joseph read, Luke 13, 35, when Israel sees their Messiah, they will look upon the one whom they pierced at his coming. Those who believe will believe, and when they do, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. Zion is, is used for Mount Zion. It's used in the Bible as an overall picture of Israel or of Jerusalem. Our deliverer, who is Jesus, our Savior, comes from Zion, from Israel. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, which is synonymous with Israel, because remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. God says, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And since God's not a liar, he makes a covenant. He has a covenant with who? With Gentiles? He does, but not in this context. That's why you can't say the church replaced Israel. Now, not all millennialists, not all all millennialists believe that. They don't all believe that the church replaced Israel. They just believe that the church has always been, or Israel was the church, and now today the church is the church. And it's all convoluted. It's very simple, actually, in amillennial thought. I call it lazy. It's just lazy Bible study. You'll find it in most Baptist churches today. Baptists don't want to deal with the end times. Presbyterians don't want to deal with the end times. Not seriously. If they did, they'd be dispensationalists. I, I, and I say that, I don't even say it with, with, with any hatred. I say it with confusion because I read the Old Testament. I read the Old Testament twice a year and, and, the, and the poetic books four times a year. I know the Old Testament. There's no way you can read passages from Isaiah, Jeremiah. There's no way you can read passages from Zechariah. No way you can read Ezekiel. No way. And you can read the prophecies of these and think that somehow that, that, that's, that, that our millennialism is right. You can't. They gloss over it. They're lazy. All Israel will be saved. Israel in the news today is very important. Don't miss that. Jesus is coming. He's the deliverer from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. He's going to remove ungodliness. The millennials will say, well, Jacob is just, a, a, just for the church. No, Jacob is Israel. And throughout, in fact, I give you a challenge to go through Romans chapter 11 and just underline Gentiles and Israel over and over. You can see there's distinct. They're not one. They're distinct. Now, everyone who believes in Jesus, if you're an Israelite, is now one with the church. Gentile believers, Jewish believers, we're the church. But Israeli unbelievers have a chance, and they fit into the category of Israel. All Israel will be saved, distinct from those who are not Israel. That's why when I say we're dispensationalists, I'm talking about we're, we believe the Bible, we take the Bible for what it says. The main distinction in this dispensationalism is a separation between the church and Israel. We see a plan that God has for both. 
No way I could be a preacher of the Bible and not believe that because there's too many passages I'd have to skip over and say, well, we'll just have to see about that another time. How many of you would like that? I step up and open the Bible and say, I don't really know what this means. We'll just wait for another time. It'd be easier for me. Paul continues, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, that is Jews, Israel, they are enemies for your sake. That's what Israel, the Israelites are today. We love them. We love the Arabs. I mean, there's no reason not to love both. But God has his promise with Israel, so we're not going to turn against them. This is why I wonder, oh, John Chrysostom, did you not read Romans? That's really an important book in the New Testament. From the standpoint of the gospel, Israel are our enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice or election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promised them unconditionally what he would do for them. So Israel existed through Abraham. They became a great nation. They birthed the Messiah because he's Jewish. The Messiah said, if you believe in me, you can have the promises of Abraham and be a true Jew. What a true Jew is, is one who believes in the Lord Jesus. And for those who reject, you will be rejected like all those who rejected me. But for all who believe, I will restore your nation. Israel is going to live in that land. That millennial reign of Christ, 1,000 years. His capital city, folks, is Jerusalem. We read about it in Ezekiel. The temple of Ezekiel in chapters 40 to 48 is a temple that's never been rebuilt. It's humongousoid. It's as big as the entire city is today. You didn't know that word exists, did you, Grant? Sometimes people wince when I say a word they don't know. <laughs> it's huge. That temple's never been rebuilt. That's the millennial temple. When we looked at Sunday, remember the parable of the Minas? When, when the, the nobleman turned king, handed out his, uh, um, his gifts to them, you will reign over ten cities. Folks, we are going to reign with Christ. In the millennium, we're not going to look like this. Isn't that great? We will have either been raptured or died and glorified, and we come back with Jesus in our glorified bodies, and we are co-regents with him. The towns and the cities all over the planet, and the capital city of Jerusalem, our Lord reigns there. And those who are faithful are helping him reign, reigning over various cities. We reign with him. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds pretty cool. And we will reign over real human beings who survived the tribulation, who are there, of course the goats go away, the sheep go into the millennium, they have babies, they populate, it's a thousand years long. They're going to have babies, they're going to have babies, and what happens when one generation of Christians has babies, and then they have babies? We saw this in church history. They don't necessarily birth Christians, do they? They all need redemption, and we're going to be there. We're reigning over them, and they know Jesus is the Lord, but they're not necessarily going to follow him. Because at the end of that millennial time period, there's a great rebellion because satan is set loose from his 1000 year bondage and god snuffs them out like that and then you have the eternal picture in revelation 21 to 22 of heaven so when and how does all this play out well hopefully i can get through it in one week next week but it'll probably take me two weeks so come next week when our history of israel we look at it from 135 we looked at it to the present day and we will look at what the bible says about it yet future and that will be a more of a bible study uh, and I will focus very closely on Gog and Magog uh, in uh, Ezekiel 38, 39. I do not assume to know it. Um, if, if, you study, if you study eschatology, 
well and you drop your Bible, your Bible comes open to Ezekiel 38, 39 because you've been there so many times. And you scratch it out and you go, I think I know it. And you realize, I don't know it. I think I know it. I don't know it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it, not like I know it, but I'm going to present it to you. And we'll have a lot of fun and we'll go away confused. At the end of the day, the end of the day we go, God is in control. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for showing us through the nation of Israel that you are indeed sovereign. You are powerful. And although horrible things have happened to that nation through the centuries, uh, you have kept it. You've kept it as part of your promise, and you will finish what you promise because you are God. You do not lie. I pray for our understanding, for our wisdom. Um, I pray for our rejoicing over what you're doing. May we be interested in watching what goes on and keep us from being newspaper eschatologists, Lord. With every little thing that happens, oh, is this that or is that this? May we just rest knowing that you're in charge. We know how it all ends. And I pray that we would look to that and, and look for your coming and be faithful. That no matter who our enemies might be, that we would love them. That your spirit who indwells us would flow through us and show the love of Jesus that is that is probably the greatest thing we can pray. May your love be seen in us. The light of the world, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.